Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 can be found on page 455 in the Black Pew Bibles. And we will resume what we paused in our sermon teaching series as a church in the book of Psalms. So in February, I finished up book two of the Psalms. If you're not used to reading the Bible, the Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. If you just flip it open, you'll probably find it there. We want to be in Psalm 73, the first Psalm of book three. There's five total collections, books, that make up what we call the Psalter, the, the book of Psalms. These are poems, which is why if you're reading, they're indented. They would have more than likely been sung in corporate worship. So in some ways, this is a very long, 150 sermon at least, sermon series on music lyrics, song lyrics. And I don't know if you pay attention to song lyrics, but I think it's a great thing to do that every Sunday at Embassy. We choose the songs we sing carefully, purposefully, so that you can hopefully hear amazing, encouraging, biblical, theological truths. And in this case, we're going to study a psalm that would be typically not sung in a Sunday in your average American church. This is a raw, honest confession of a church leader, if you would call him that, Asaph, of doubt, of despair, of thinking that he might give up faith altogether because some have. That's Psalm 73. How many songs have you heard on the Christian radio, the family-friendly, encouraging, always positive Christian radio. Raw, honest laments. Where are you, God? Probably not often, right? What we have before us is what several Bible teachers and commentators have said is a book that touches every range of human emotion and experience. And so we find ourselves looking at a psalm and a song about doubt. I'm going to read the psalm. I think it's a good place to start. I'm going to read the whole thing from beginning to end. It has a very beautiful design to it, but I'm going to just point out the simple, obvious turning points. Verse 17. So before we read, I want you to notice that in verses 1 through 3, there's an introduction, and he says, I looked out at the prosperity of the wicked, and I was envious. I knew that God was good, but I was tempted to not believe he was good because of how the wicked were getting away with their evil. And so from 1 to 16, that's all you're going to hear. I was tempted to give up my faith altogether. Verse 17 will be the pivot. He enters into the sanctuary of God and his whole perspective changes. And then we're just going to see that for the whole second half. So a simple outline of this psalm is 1 to 16, envy. Verses 17 to the end of the psalms, Psalm 73, verse 28, is about presence, being near God's good presence. Let's read it. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but... As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. 
Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And that ends our reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And my prayer is that he will uproot the sin of envy and lead us into the power of his presence, his good, near presence. Amen. Envy is a problem. It's a big problem in this psalm. It's a big problem in our lives. Let's diagnose the problem. Envy is a problem. That's part one of this sermon. I'm going to diagnose it in five ways. So that's kind of sub-points. Part one, envy is a problem. Part two, experiencing the goodness of God's presence is our solution. Experiencing the goodness of God's presence is our solution to our envy problem. Let's start with the problem, envy. Envy is a problem. It's Asaph's problem. It's our problem. It's Israel's problem. First, sub-point number one. Envy is a problem because it's a prosperity problem. Here's how I want to define envy in this psalm. It's a prosperity problem. And there's two ways to think about this. Look at verse 3 again carefully. I almost gave up my faith, verse 2 says. That's what the metaphor is referring to. I almost slipped. I almost let go. I almost lost my footing, my foundation. My understanding of the world, it's been shaken. I thought God was good, but, see the but in verse 2? I thought God was good, but... I don't think he's good. Why? 
answer is verse 3. Because, for, here's the reason. I looked, I saw the wicked, and they were prospering. And that's what that long poem is explaining from verses 4 all the way to verse 12. Verse 12 is the nice concluding summary of his poem on the wicked's prosperity. Look at verse 12. Behold, look, look around everybody. These are the wicked. Always at ease, the riches increase. So, envy is a prosperity problem. Obviously. When you look around and somebody has something that you want and they get it, jealousy, envy, that's what we're talking about. When other people prosper, we're tempted to this sin that's called envy. And this is precisely what he's identifying here, the envy of others. But specifically here, it's the envy of the wicked that are prospering. I think it's good for you and me to just realize that it could be the next door neighbor. It could be the kind church member sitting next to you. The prosperity of anybody is difficult to deal with. When they have what you want, you feel like God is holding out on you. Surely God is good to you. Well, then why isn't he giving me this good gift that he gave someone else? That's the deal. That's what we're talking about. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, I was envious. Here's a second way to diagnose the problem of prosperity. Again, if you're here today and you're struggling, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you know yourself, I'm not a Christian. Thank you for coming. I'm glad you're here. I think it would be good for you at this point of the sermon to ask yourself this. Are you experiencing any kind of prosperity in your life? Financial prosperity, emotional prosperity, like things are good. Is that necessarily a sign that all is well with you and your soul and your final state before God? Is prosperity potentially blinding you to the ultimate realities of the spiritual things that are going on in the world? John Calvin, the great Protestant reformer, said that there is a large, difficult trial that we all have to deal with. It's called suffering. But do you want to know what the more difficult trial is? Prosperity. Prosperity is a problem because when other people have it, we want it. And prosperity is a problem because it makes us feel kind of smug. Like, oh, things are good. And in this case, clearly, things are not good. The wicked are doing wicked things. They're cutting corners and they're getting away with it. As I was preparing this sermon, I was reminded of this book I read a few years ago. It's a book by Malcolm Gladwell. Talking to Strangers. And in there, he has a couple chapters where he talks about, you guys ever heard of these people? Larry Nance, Jerry Sandusky, and Bernie Madoff. Do you know what these three people have in common? For year after year after year, Bernie Madoff got rich, filthy rich, by cheating people of their money in the New York stock market. Ponzi scheme. Wikipedia, look it up. Year after year after year, people just thought, wow, he just has really good insights. No, he was lying, cheating, stealing money from people. And he did it for a long time. So I want you to imagine yourself in the middle of the 90s. Things are going tough financially. And there's Bertie Madoff, enjoying life, prosperous, fat with wealth and riches, comfort and ease. And he's doing it on the backs of people robbing them of their money. Larry Nance. Jerry Sandusky, child abusers. 
year after year after year. Larry Nance was the gymnastics for the women's U.S. gymnastics team, personal trainer instructor, and right in front of parents. I mean, it's despicable, the stories. It, it's those moments, like, and I mean this in no exaggeration, politic, uh, uh, preacher flourish. As I was re-listening and, and working through these chapters of talking to strangers and, and being reminded of this story, the Larry Nance one, I mean, I was just like, I was led to weep. It's despicable. He was getting away with this. Parents, just clueless, didn't realize. And here he is, abusing girl after girl. I mean, it was countless numbers of sexual abuse. Got away with it. Same thing with Jerry Sandusky, well-known football coach at Penn State. This is just recent examples in the last 20, 30 years. I'm sure there are others. There are some in the church. Pastors that get rich off of churches. Pastors that abuse church members emotionally, spiritually. When you see the prosperity of the wicked, it can cause you to question your faith. Prosperity is a problem, and it can sometimes lead us to envy, and not just any kind of surface-level envy, deep-seated envy, questioning the very foundations of how we make sense of the world. If God is good, why in the world is Jerry Sandusky getting away with that? Thankfully, in all three of these stories, all three of these men are behind bars and imprisoned. And that's because there's a second problem about envy and the prosperity of the wicked. Perspective. Perspective. Do you see how the turning point in this psalm is a perspective change? Look again at verse 17. Until I entered the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. Notice that the verb that he uses in verse 3 is, I saw I saw something in the world and I'm trying to make sense of it. Here's this terrible person getting away with terrible things and they're living this happy life for year after year after year. In fact, the word used in verse 12, behold, these are the wicked. Here they are, always. It's the word forever. They are not just getting away with it like for one day, one week. It's like they're perpetually getting away with these horrific acts of evil. Behold, living in ease, accumulating riches. But then I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. I saw something different. It's like this, right? My hands are right in front of my face. Sometimes you can see suffering in your life. You can see prosperity of the wicked. And it's just like, that's all you see. And if that's all you see, that perspective, it doesn't pull out. It doesn't draw out. Entering into the sanctuary for him was a, was a game changer, not because he stopped suffering. Notice that he personally says that he was suffering, verse 14. For all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So notice the contrast. Prosperous, wicked, evil men. I'm getting tormented every single morning. When that's in the front of your face and you lose perspective, the grand end. That's what he says, the end. I discerned what the end will be. And that is, God is good. God is good and will judge. They will not get away with these atrocities. And that's what he says all through verse 18 and following. Truly, you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. Do you guys like poetry? Slippery. When was the last time you heard slippery in this psalm? Do you see the play on words he's doing here? 
Verse 2, I almost slipped, but truly they will slip. They think that they're on a solid ground, but they are on sinking sand. We set our feet upon the rock of the promises and the goodness of God. And even when it seems to us, perspective-wise, darkness is hiding his face, we rest on his unchanging grace. Do you know this reality? Storms come. But when you can step back and see, what will be the outcome of this? This small thing, this big thing, or this lifetime of a thing? That's why we had earlier in the service the reading that Andrea read for us. These troubles are light and momentary afflictions. We see. We see troubles, and they're like this. But when we see the glory that is to come, it changes everything. Finish the sentence. We walk by faith and not by... A little louder, please. We walk by faith and not by sight. Too often, skeptics, doubters, they think it's, we walk by faith and not by reason. It's not the way the scriptures teach. The opposite of faith is not blind, turn off your brain, stupidity. Reason should lead you to conclude that there is an injustice problem in this world, and if there is no God, well then what do you have then? Reason it out. Talk to a non-Christian friend, co-worker, neighbor. Talk to yourself. If injustice exists, true or false? True. Injustice exists. And there is no God? Will there be any accountability for them? If somebody gets away with everything for their whole life, they don't become caught like Bernie Madoff, Larry Nance, Jerry Sandusky. The only reason we know those stories is because they got caught. What about the people right now that have not got caught, and what if they live their entire life that way? This has happened, friends. So then what? The injustice problem is not solved by getting rid of God. If anything, that makes the injustice problem way worse. We walk by faith. Not by sight. The opposite of faith is only your perspective of what you can see right now with what you can make sense of what you see right now. Coming to church, reading your Bible, being in discipleship relationships gives you an eternal bigger perspective. Envy is ultimately and fundamentally a perspective problem. Do you all see that in the text? I had envy, I almost slipped, until I discerned that they're ultimately the ones that are going to slip and fall to ruin. Problem diagnosis number three. We have a prosperity problem, we have a perspective problem, we have a portion problem. Portion. Turn with me to verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my rock. That's what some of you should have in your Bibles, a footnote The Hebrew word there is rock. My flesh, my heart, it will fail. It certainly is wasting away, as the scripture said in our service earlier in 2 Corinthians. The outer body is wasting away, but I can be renewed day by day by knowing that God is my rock and my portion forever. You will struggle with envy and jealousy if you do not have security emotionally about the portion that God has given you. 
the portion. Portion is the word allotment. It's really the word about dividing up land in physical earth. But it's a, it's a, it's a metaphor. Are you happy with your plot size of your, your house? You know, how many acres you have? That's, that's the idea. But use that as a metaphor for spiritually. Are you content and satisfied with the portion, the allotment that God has given you? Envy happens when you're not content. When you think that God's holding out on you. When you think your portion is not dealt out fairly. Why do they get that and I get this? When you know that God is your portion and that you get all of God and you get all of his goodness, envy melts away. It's a portion. If the perspective changed, you realize, I have a great portion. It's God. It's not your physical circumstances. It's not your current bouts with suffering. It's not your current bank account number. It's, do you have God? You've got a good portion. For the last 15 years, I read this book. There's a paragraph in it. I'm not even recommending the book. I won't even tell you what the book title is. I just want to read you a paragraph from it. Because for the last 15 years, since parenting, I've been trying to figure out what this says. I think today, Psalm 73 will help us. This is a pastor that's writing at the end of his pastoral ministry. He's been a pastor for years and years and years. And he talks about the power of God's grace to resolve conflict with siblings in the home. Here's what he says in this paragraph. Almost all sibling problems have to do with a child's feeling that the affection of their parents has been unevenly distributed. The middle child thinks that the eldest one is favored. The youngest child is really the favored one, though. The youngest basks in the affection of the less uptight parents who have been not less uptight, but just wiser in their child rearing. The oldest child feels that they have been imposed upon. Not only were they the guinea pig for first-time parents, but she had to look after her children, or the children that came after her. Responsible too early. This mantra of birth order has become something important to contribute here, but each child always takes it in his or her own way. Ask any adult child. They'll let you know exactly the affection that they think was distributed to them, who was the favored child in the family, and who was the slighted one. And this answer is often expressed in where that child is living now. Children with resentment will sometimes move away. Children that love their parents will sometimes live close. This is the effect. When children feel deep within them that the love from their mother and their father was proportional. It's a really excellent meditation on the idea that envy between siblings is this deeply rooted from the moments that you were born and the early stages of your life that you feel like mom and dad don't love me as much as they love someone else. Is it any interest to you that the first story outside of the Garden of Eden is a brother killing his brother? I think precisely if you read that story very carefully, you'll realize Cain killed Abel because he was feeling like God was holding out on him. That God was keeping from him. In fact, God was kindly, mercifully approaching Cain. Reread the story. Cain, there's another way. Don't go that way. 
God's portion for you is not the same as the person sitting next to you, but it is not unfair. It takes faith to believe that because your sight will deceive you. Believe, trust in the goodness of God. A personal problem, a portion problem, a perspective problem, a prosperity problem, personal. That's where we're at. Certainly envy is a prosperity problem. Certainly envy is a perspective problem. It's a portion problem. It's a personal problem. Who's the writer of this psalm, by the way? Asaph, you guys know who he is? Well, probably not. I had to do some research, I forgot. Asaph, he, he appears in Chronicles. He's, he's a worship leader. He's a song director. He's basically like a pastor. So I ask you this. How many scriptures have you read? How many scriptures have you written? You might have read a lot of the Bible, but how many have you written? Do you think that the people that wrote the Bible were all just always, 100%, all the time, walking with Jesus, walking with God, and never had any struggles? Of course not. Here you have a leader in the church that's struggling with doubt, confessing to us that he was a beast. He was a brute of a man. He's like an animal. Did you see that? Look at verse 22. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He was raw and honest in his confession. I almost gave up my whole faith. That's what this slipping language is. His doubts shook to the core. Interestingly, Embassy Church, some of you were here in 2017. I gave this sermon in a different way on Psalm 73. We did a six-week series on Psalms. It was right before we worked through the Beatitudes. And I was showing background material before we study the Sermon on the Mount. So some of you remember. Remember we did that long sermon series in the book of Matthew? Took, took a few years. We took little breaks like we're doing with the psalm series. Well, it was around that time that we studied Psalm 73, and I talked about how we don't walk just by sight, we walk by faith, and unpacked this psalm for you. And I mentioned this point of application. I said, even church leaders can have doubts. Little did I know it would be exactly a year later. I'd be preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and we got to chapter 18, 17 and 18, and there was a story that it caused me to doubt, like doubt God, doubt the Bible. And it didn't just go away, it like persisted. Do you guys know that that's kind of hard to get up week after week and be like, I really do think I believe these things, but to have in the back of your head, but do you, Phil? Do you? Why do I share the story? I'm not currently experiencing those doubts. The Lord graciously, I think, gave me a lot of help and grace. But if you're ever in this church and you think, Pastor Phil, he sounds so confident, sounds so smart, he, he knows the Bible, I don't. He probably never struggles with doubt. I'm telling you, I have. And maybe you will too. And maybe you are right now. Did you know that the Bible actually commands how to deal with doubters? Go read Jude again and you'll see that there's a specific command that says, be merciful to those who are doubting. Be merciful, not beat them over the head with books. Hey, read more books. I mean, a good book might help, but show mercy, show patience. Do you have room in your heart for somebody to confess to you, 
I don't know if God exists. Uh, we're members of the same church. Can you be merciful to that confession? I think it's really important for all of us to realize that the church is not comprised of a bunch of people that got it all together and you're just the only one struggling. Even the writers of scripture doubted. Your own pastor has seasons of doubt and struggle. Welcome to the club. Let's be merciful to one another. See, doubting, it's deeply personal. It's individual. Asaph, he's doubting. Truly, I know in my head that God is good, but in my experience, in my personal experience, he doesn't seem good today. I would encourage you just very practically, share that with somebody. Is that you today? Are you doubting? Would you just confess, I think I, think I know that there's a God and I think he's good, but I just want to be honest, he's not very good in my personal experience. One of my favorite prayers is, in a book on lament, Weep With Me, written by a pastor in Indiana. And he tells the story about him and his wife, how they heard the news yet again that they would be losing another child prematurely. And the wife got into the car after just this devastating news of bad news after bad news after bad news. And this was her prayer. God, I know you're good, but it just doesn't feel like it right now. Amen. I would encourage you to be honest like the psalmist. God, I know that you're good. Truly, I know you're good. It just doesn't look like it right now. I think we need to confess those things. I think it's therapeutic when we do. I think that's why Psalm 73 in part exists. Don't think that you're alone in your doubt. You're not. And embassy church members, if you're not doubting right now, praise God. But weep with those who are weeping. Struggle with the strugglers, walk alongside them and be merciful to them. Fifth and final diagnosis of the envy problem. It's not just about prosperity or perspective or whether or not God's giving me enough portion for me. It's not just a personal thing. It's pervasive. Asaph's not the only one. The entire community of the Israelite family is struggling with doubts. Jeremiah, in the book of Lamentations, explains during this time period Asaph is writing, and the temple's destroyed. For more on that, come next week. David is going to preach for us Psalm 74. The destruction of the temple has already happened. God's sanctuary is not established. What did he say in verse 17? When I entered into the sanctuary, then, ah, I got perspective. Well, what happens when the sanctuary's not there? What, in, what if the nearness of God can't be experienced? It's more than just a, a little personal envy problem. This is a cosmic problem. This is big. This is bigger than just Asaph. It's pervasive. All of Israel, I believe, is going through a trial together, and Asaph's leading them through it. Psalm 73, all the way to Psalm 89, is mostly filled with the highest concentration of these kind of psalms that we call lament psalms. In other words, remember that when you're reading the Psalms, they are not just individual songs that are randomly thrown together. You know, if you like hit Spotify or something and say, all right, give me just a random selection of songs. I don't know what the next one's coming. Oh, cool song. Never heard it before. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a careful, curated list 
where Psalm 72 ended with David praying for Solomon and saying, God, may he reign forever. May the kingdom last and may the king of Israel reign on the throne and all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Read Psalm 72. Then realize that here we are, post-exile, the kingdom's divided, the kingdom's destroyed, the temple is no more, and now Asaph's like, the wicked are prospering, Babylon is successful, and Israel is depleted. Where are you, God? And it only continues in the very next psalm, Psalm 74. Remember your promises to us, O God. Be faithful to your promises. I kind of wish you wouldn't have even made those promises because then I wouldn't have this expectation that you would be near us. But you seem so far. That's what's going on all through, not just this psalm, but the whole collection is primarily about the conflict that happens when you have faith in a God who's made a promise and those promises haven't been fulfilled. This section, book three, that's my summary of not just Psalm 73, but the whole book. The whole collection. The conflict between your faith in a good God and the experience of his absence. So we're going to sit in this for a few weeks. There are going to be happier psalms that give us a confident reassurance that God will bring about his promises scattered throughout. But primarily Psalm 73 sets the tone for us. And it tells us that envy is a problem that all of us are facing, will face, It's a problem that I think reaches all the way back to the very beginning of creation. It's a human problem. Did you know that there are some that would argue that the center of the fall of sin in the world, the human condition at its root, is not pride, although that's there. Not usurping the throne, although that's there. It's envy and jealousy. The serpent in the garden asked Adam and Eve, to question the goodness of God. Did he really say that? Have you ever thought about the idea that envy might be one of the most disturbing, destructive forces in your personal life and in our society? The first command that God gave Adam in the garden was generously receive and abundantly eat. Too often, I think, we focus on what God has permitted or or has forbidden rather than what he has permitted. Imagine the botanical gardens. You guys ever been to the botanical gardens? Huge, luscious garden. I mean, we're talking acres upon acres. Think national park size. The Garden of Eden is teeming with life and love. And God tells these two people, eat! In fact, In Hebrew, it's eat, eat. And in English, we translate it, surely eat. It's like saying with big, bold exclamation mark, eat and have your fill. That's God's first command in the garden. Enjoy. Experience my goodness. And the serpent comes in with just a simple question, but is God holding out on you? And that's why I think that the story continues with Cain murdering his brother Abel. Similarly, jealous. He favored Abel and not me. God's holding out on me. It might even lead some of us to murder. Envy is a prosperity problem when we see the prosperity of the wicked and them get away with it. 
It's a perspective problem. It's a portion problem. It's a deeply personal problem. It's a pervasive problem. It's a human problem. Are you ready for the good news? Just like Asaph. We are invited to experience personally the power of God's presence, the goodness of God's presence. Through the Son, Jesus Christ, the solution to this problem is to experience. I chose that word very carefully. I don't think Asaph has a doctrine problem. He knows in verse 1, truly, God is good to Israel. I know that. I know it's true, but my experience is telling me he's not good to Israel. It is a waste of time to go to church. That's what he says. Look at verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence because I keep trying to do what's right and keep my nose clean and obey God and all I get is suffering. Where I look out, Babylonians are prospering. Where are you, God? And the divine irony of the Bible is that God shows up in the darkest corners of the most envious, wicked situations by taking on human flesh and dying on a cross for sinners. Brothers and sisters, you will struggle for the rest of your life with doubts up and down, but the solution to those doubts needs to take you to the foot of the cross where you see that Jesus Christ, he did not just have his foot almost slip He slipped all the way to the pit of the grave. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? But in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's he's questioning, God, is there any other way? It was dark. It It was terrible. Consider Jesus, who became weak so that you could be strong, who gave up everything of his portion in heaven so that you could have his portion in place. The great exchange the righteous for the unrighteous. Or to put it another way, in my master's program, I was living in D.C. and I'm just working on school and I'm trying to train to learn the Bible and learn theology to be a pastor. And some of you may know this, but I worked that amazing job called being a Starbucks barista. And while I was doing so, I had so many interactions with so many people that knew that I was a Bible teacher in training and they had all kinds of doubts and suspicions and questions. And so one of my coworkers just was real polite. It was not like contentious. Just said, I can't believe in God. I can't believe in God when there's so much suffering and evil and injustice in this world. And I said, I think the solution comes when you realize that the God of this world does not just allow suffering to happen. But he took on suffering in himself. The goodness of God that Asaph is talking about is just like a mere shadow compared to the goodness of God who has died in your place. What other philosophy, world religion, or ethic can you give me that has the creator of the universe with all power, all prosperity, forsake that for the sake of you when you are undeserving of it? When that clicks in your mind rationally, when that changes in your heart and you experience that his portion for you is infinity and he has enough room to share for every single one of us in this room. He's not stingy. He says to you, eat, eat. The garden is full. 
And the reason we know this to be true is because when God sent forth his son, he did not send his son into the world to rescue just the elect certain few that really figured it out. He chose the elect few that he saved by his grace, by his undeserved, unproportionate, unmerited grace. So my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is our rock, and he is my portion forever. For me, it is good to be near God and make the Lord my God my refuge. The solution to our envy problem, personally, corporately, cosmically, is the cross of Jesus Christ. You can know right now, today, that your inheritance, your portion, your love, the deep longings in your heart, even if mom and dad, I mean, maybe they did have favorites. I don't know. But the Heavenly Father does not. He does not play favorites. He does not show partiality. He is fair and he is just. So let him hold you. Did you see that in the psalm? Hold your hand. You guide me with your counsel, verse 24. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you because you hold my right hand, verse 23. You guide me. You hold me. I want us to think of ourselves like little children that don't understand. We're in a dark room. The Heavenly Father comes and reaches his hand down and says, I know you can't see what's ahead, but hold my hand and trust my heart. Take the hand and trust his heart. When your experience is God is not good, hold his hand and know that that hand is pierced forever. Like Thomas, the doubter, putting his finger into the handprints. It's that good. Take his hand, trust his heart, even when you can't see his face, see his plan, know why he let that happen to you. I don't know. Take his hand. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to pray that you would do powerful work in our hearts, in our lives, and in our world. And so we want to thank you for this word about envy. It is a serious, destroying power that can ruin our lives, take away our joy and contentment. And we want to pray that you would Use your Holy Spirit to convict us of our envy and drive us to your goodness. That we would be so confident of your goodness as we gaze at the cross, as we see the nail-pierced hands. And we see that you, who were rich, became poor for our sakes so that we could become rich. We were destined for hell, but our portion is heaven. And it's because of you and your love, generous love. I pray, God, wash over us as we sing the next few songs, as we take the Lord's Supper, your abundant generosity to us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.